Hello, everyone. Welcome to Think Time. In today's episode, I interviewed F. Peter Phillips. Uh, Peter and I go far back um, to our time together as lawyers at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel. Peter was a senior associate when I was a junior associate, and we worked together for many years on a couple of very large cases. So we spent an awful lot of time together. Peter, um, as you'll find out from the podcast, was on his second career by the time I met him, because prior to being a lawyer, he was a professional actor, having studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, which is the premier you know, acting school in the world. And after he left Schulte and uh, left the legal practice, he became a mediator and professor of law. So we get into all that during the podcast, and Peter is a great guy. He's a great raconteur uh, and tells some really, really good stories. So I think you're going to enjoy it. The one thing I would add is during the podcast, we talked about Peter's family, including his wife, who's also an actor, and his son, who's a lawyer. Um, but I cut the mic off because we started going a little long before Peter had a chance to talk about his daughter, Julia. And it really was unfortunate because uh, we talked about her after the mic went off. Julia, just a few months ago, was a National Book Award finalist for her first novel uh, called The Disappearing Earth. And for those of you who don't know about that particular award, you know, it's it's up there with the Pulitzer in terms of of literature. So for her to have written a book that got recognized is just amazing. And Peter was really uh, great in talking about how proud he was about Julia. You won't get to hear it. And unfortunately, neither will Julia. But if the podcast serves any purpose, hopefully it will have brought a little attention to this book, which I recommend anyone get a hold of and read and see why it was so acclaimed. So without further ado, I bring you F. Peter Phillips. I'm here with F. Peter Phillips. Peter, thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Oh, absolutely, Brian. I look forward to it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we didn't start taping until this moment, but um, we were preceded by me explaining to you what a podcast was. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm really cutting edge with respect to how I get my media. I actually read a paper newspaper in the morning. You, you really it, like, is delivered just like Ozzie and Harriet, you know? <laughs> you didn't know what a podcast was, right? Well, I heard it was, I, I, I've heard of them. I just don't take advantage of them. Well, um, I think I also mentioned before we turned the recorder on that um, this came about because I had lunch with your son about a month ago. Right. And we both were talking about how we both listen to podcasts. And then when he asked me about mine, what it's about, it just the light bulb went off. And I said, you know, your dad would be great to have on a podcast where, you know, the whole theme of which is people I know who lead interesting or have had interesting lives. Yeah, I'm sure that he laughed at that proposal. <laughs> Well, you know, as I told you also, I started to tell him some stories about you, which he had no idea of. So I think really the best the person who's going to really gain the most by this might be him. Yeah, well, I, I you know, I've, I think you mentioned yourself that ignorance of, of things from your children is usually a, a conscious decision rather than one of negligence. And so we need to be careful with respect to to uh, you know, getting in the way of, of a well-tendered uh, and, and highly protective ignorance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what the editing process can be for. And, yeah, exactly. And we will do that. So, right. um, you know, um, when I did tell, when I started to tell your son some stories, and then I realized I should hold them back for that reason and others, um, it just immediately started going through my head. 
the interesting things you've done. And I'm like, I, I just, it wasn't even close to, you know, my life in terms of variety of careers, variety of interesting stories. Right. And so it seems obvious to me that this is going to be, I believe, one of my most interesting podcasts. Well, there you have it then. So, uh, so before we get into all that good stuff, right. and, you know, other than, you know, saying, you know, we're going to get into the fact that you're an actor and a lawyer and now a professor of law and a mediator, we'll get into all that. So people now have a little idea of where we're going. But before we do that, typically I start by having the person who's doing this tell them a, tell a little bit about themselves, kind of where they're from, where they were born. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I was born in 1949 on Pearl Harbor Day, 1949, December 7, in uh, right near the Fells Naphtha plant in Darby, Pennsylvania. And my dad was a veteran of World War II. My mom was a nurse. Uh, and I was one of seven kids who were born between the years 48 and 63. Um, I was, I, my dad was eventually an academic, and so we spent my babyhood around the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard, and my childhood around the University of Virginia, and then my adolescence uh, around the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School. So where I grew up was a function of dad's career, um, the, the main thing I remember is Virginia. I, I, I mainly remember growing up in a little small farm about 10 miles outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, I didn't know most of that, yeah. <laughs> despite yeah. the fact that we pulled a lot of some right. semi-all-nighters together. Right, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly so right. what was, did you, was that kind of a good childhood moving around? A lot of people who have to move around because of their parents' no, child uh, Yeah, we, d- we didn't move around in the sense that uh, like an army kid would. When I was six, we moved to Virginia and stayed there till I was 13. Then in 1963, I went to ninth grade in the public schools there in in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, and stayed there until I left Upper Darby High School in 67 when I went to college. So um, it, 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 it was not an itinerant childhood in in any sense of the word. I see. You know, I, there was time there that I went to a few different schools, but uh, and then once I went to uh, college, I didn't really come back. You know, there yeah. was never a time I then rejoined the family. What did your dad teach? Economics. Uh, he was an economist, and he specialized in. Um, regulated markets and antitrust. Uh, In particular, he was interested in the relationship that government's public sector kind of expenditure had on the growth of industries and innovation. He would look at business jets or um, the the, uh, technological advances in stuff like a, a jet engine and realize that some of it was because the Air Force required something, but some of it was because the private sector required something. And and that intimate relationship then led itself to the, to the big question of his career, which is should AT&T be broken up? He, he, he ended up really wondering whether when you have an antitrust and a competitive statutes, exceptions ought to be made for certain public, publicly necessary services. Who's going to put the telephone uh, to the old widow who lives in the top of the hill unless the government requires that that be done? It's kind of like a, 
kind of looking at libertarianism, right? And saying, you know, if you're a strict libertarian, you think government doesn't isn't needed for almost anything, maybe other than defense. But most people would concede, I think, even libertarians, that there are functions that only government That's can right. provide. And, you know, let's keep them out as much as possible. That's right. He, he was a, a guy whose influence on me I only have recently, uh, you know, it's only since he croaked that I really realized how smart he was. <laughs> when did he croak? <laughs> and, I, and I realized that either because of what he told me or from watching what he did, that the really interesting questions are the ones for which there isn't a poster, in that, that the fun questions are the ones that live on the tension between one extreme and the other, that you have two propositions that appear to be um, uh, in conflict with each other, but it's the accommodation of those two that makes inquiry interesting and that makes decision-making interesting. I sound like a law professor, but it, it it's actually is well, true. Well, we didn't get to that yet, but we will. But, wait, so your, your dad was a professor at University of Pennsylvania Wharton School at Harvard, at these you know, very well-respected institutions, and despite that, you didn't think he was all that smart? No, it isn't. It was or that I was ignorant. It, it was that I was ignorant. You had no interest. Uh, yeah, Mark Mark Twain had a uh, saying that um, that when he was fourteen, his father was so irritable he couldn't be in the same room with him anymore. But by the time Twain got to be twenty-one, he was astonished how much his dad had developed. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> the same thing happened. To it you. was that kind of situation. I never read a word that my dad wrote until I was. Oh, uh, until I was at Schulte Roth. Is that right? Yeah, I never read a single book he wrote uh, until I was, what is that, 40, 45? You know, it, I, I could be surprised by that, but, you know, my own life, I know after law school, I stopped, I wasn't very curious academically about just about anything. And I don't think if my father had been writing textbooks or, or interesting, you know, pub, you know, things to publish, I would have cared either until maybe yeah. right about now. Yeah, I think there's a very healthy ignorance, as, as we said a few minutes ago, that uh, sons have with respect to their fathers. And it's the way it ought to be. And one of the aspects of grace that I'm trying to develop as I get older is to realize that if my son could give a damn, that's probably <laughs> the right response. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to see if he eventually listens to this. But uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by his father. But it's funny when I was sitting with your son, I realized he had told me that, that you were 69, and I might, you know, I just was gobsmacked to think of you that way. And you know, I can be equally gobsmacked to think of myself as 52. There you go. Yeah. And he's in his early 30s. Am, am I? Yeah, that's right. He's 34. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll share an anecdote with you, okay, which was uh, during, the, uh, during the World Series in, on October 31st, okay, 2001, the World Series had been delayed because of the World Trade Center attack. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever had tickets to a World Series game. And uh, I invited my dad to come to the World Series game with me and and Peter and I, uh, so there were th th there were the three of us, and I had around the fifth or sixth inning I had one of these blessed kind of clarity of vision that I realized I was sitting as a son with my father, as a father with my son, and that I was so richly blessed to be at that moment in my life with an 
it, with such a full and abundant uh, amount of intimate love that is parental in nature rather than and, and it's a unique kind of love that's parental in nature and a lot of it incorporates ignorance or um, lack of curiosity and instead all it is is a is um, not a habit it, it's a kind of hardwired relationship that you have with each other uh, and whether you understand each other well or know each other's biography or know the titles of each other's books it's almost is, beside the point it, absolutely correct yeah absolutely correct and in the 11th inning of that game uh derek jeter hit a hit a home run and became mr november I don't know if you I, remember I know that, that game. Yes, I'm a Mets fan, so that was a great moment for me. <laughs> to be at, and frankly, if I was at a ball game, all my friends would know that I would have left by the seventh inning. Well, there you the go. Traffic. All right. <laughs> As I say, you know, <laughs> unnecessary ignorance. Yeah, there, no, yeah, it was good that you. Yeah, that was a great game. I mean, if you're a Yankee fan, yep. that's as good as it gets. Yeah. So, um, so you become a teenager, um, and at this time, the Vietnam War is raging, I believe. It certainly is. And. Um, well, you, you were draft eligible, I presume? I was drafted. Yeah. And were, were you in college already or was this pre-college? Yes, I had a student deferment. And uh, then in 1970 was the first uh, draft, uh, lottery draft. And uh, the way that worked was that uh, someone picked numbers uh, that that were associated with dates of one's birthday. And so my brother, who was two years older than I, got number 312 or something like that. I got number 12, <laughs> which meant that uh, at the end of my senior year of college, I would be drafted. And when, what, what year were you in at this point? That Well, I think that was early in my senior year. All right, so, so you, you knew at that moment unless something changed, you were going to get drafted and, and presumably... Well, yeah. I, you know, Brian, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about the actual sequence of this because what ultimately occurred by May or June of, of 1971 when I finished my college... Where'd you go to college, by the way? At Dartmouth, Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And I had uh, developed at that time uh, to be a, an accomplished uh, actor. I had uh, developed some skills and some experience in acting, and I had a great ambition to act and to direct. I had been accepted to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, which was an accomplishment that I was very, very proud of and eager to do. Um, I was a Quaker and was a pacifist. And writing up what my dad would call a, a decision tree, every branch of the decision tree excluded the possibility of going to RADA. Uh, I could accept the draft. I could be... Uh, I could not accept the draft and do so legally by being acknowledged as a conscientious objector or do so illegally by refusing to respond to the draft notice. I could evade responsibilities as a citizen and, and you know, export myself to Canada or someplace else. But there wasn't a course of action that included my continuing my training professionally. Was, was the thinking that 
you can make principled arguments for most of the courses of action you just enumerated, but to go to London for school, it would be hard to justify? No, it's just that if I went to Canada, I couldn't go to London. If I went to the army, I couldn't go to London. If I went to jail, I couldn't go to London. You know, in other words, there was no, there was no, there was no branch of the decision tree that included going to London. Like leaving to go to Canada, like a lot of Americans who were drafted did, you couldn't go to London. No, because I wouldn't, my passport would be no good. But Canada, that wasn't the situation. Right, but I, but Canada isn't London. Yeah. So in any event, you know, I, I was at I was at a situation where I knew that there would be a hiatus in my in my professional career, and then that being the case, I made the option that I could live with most. Because this is one of the things. Although I was only twenty one, it's one of those things that you're not going to uh, be able to correct an error. Um, one always hopes to live in a way that, that you don't have days of regret for I could have or I should have or golly, when I was young, I might have and all that sort of thing. So I made the option that I thought was most livable with. Which was? I applied for conscientious objection. And what, well, first of all, can you explain that to people who don't know what that means? Yeah. And then explain what that process was like right. for you. The Selective Service Act permits an exemption from draft for people who, for religious purposes, uh, object to war, uh, not only with respect to being a combatant, but also, and this was my instance, being a non-combatant as well. Uh, the alternative would be to to serve the country in alternative service for the period that the enlistment would otherwise have been. The local draft board was required to meet with anyone who conscientiously objects to service in the military and make a determination whether that person's application is well-founded. So it was necessary for me to fulfill the application explain in the application the religious basis for my objection to war and my service in war, and then meet with the, uh, my local, in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, my local draft board. When the day for the interview came, I drove down from uh, New Hampshire, where I was working in a theater there, um, I don't know, five hours or so to get to Upper Darby, six hours. I left at about 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And there sitting on the front steps of the draft board was my father. Now, my father uh, had one arm. My father, when he was 19, um, about my age at that time, had served in World War II, uh, had been very, very badly wounded, and had lost his left arm and lived the rest of his life with only one arm. And I was very surprised to see him there. And I said to him, what do you, you know, you can't go into this <laughs> interview with me. Why, why did you come? And well, obviously knew about it, but you oh, certainly yeah. didn't invite him. No, of course not. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't know. I, I just thought that if anybody in there was interested in the views of a one-armed veteran, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to offer them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, well anyway, that, that that application was successful, and I, and did, I did, he get, did he get into the meeting? No, they wouldn't let trash like that no. in the interview room. <laughs> did they pass him at least on the way? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. But uh, it made an impression on me anyway. Right. And, uh, and so I spent two years uh, doing alternative service in the state of New Hampshire, which is where I lived at the time. And uh, I reapplied then for the Royal Academy, and I was rejected. So I worked in theaters in New Hampshire and Massachusetts and applied again to the Royal Academy and was accepted. So I trained at the Royal Academy between the end of 1973 until the beginning of 1976, and I came to New York City as a, as a, a classically trained actor. The Royal Academy, where would you put that in terms of, you know, if you had to rank it among top theater programs in the world? One. <laughs> I, I assumed so, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> Still is? I don't know. Uh, it, the people I went, in my class at the Royal Academy um, were Kieran Hines and uh, Kevin McNally. Uh, surrounding us were uh, actors who had phenomenal careers uh, and to this day anytime I visit London I spend half my time visiting friends in the law and the other half of my time backstage someplace at the National Theatre you know oh, that's great saying hello to everybody wow. yeah, yeah. so it's, it's a remarkable place so you said in 76 you came back yeah in 76 I came back uh, my wife is an actor as well she had spent those two years with the National Theatre of the Deaf and went on an international tour as a hearing actress with that troupe. And so in January 76, we both moved into New York City, got ourselves in a one-bedroom apartment in, um, in the Upper West Side and, and started a career. And we were both very fortunate. We, uh, from then on, worked enough, worked steadily enough as actors that we never did anything else. A lot of actors, as you can imagine, do waiter jobs or teaching jobs or training jobs or things like that, but Elaine and I always acted. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, well, we might as well get into a few of those roles, and we can go with Elaine first, because she had a prominent role that, so much so that I saw her again you did? Over the weekend. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Elaine, Elaine had a very good role in uh, the film of Uncle Buck, and, and a lot of people who don't know Elaine would recognize her as the mom in Uncle Buck. Uh, she, however, has acted several roles on Broadway, lots and lots of roles in regional theater until we had our kids and, you know, regional theater became more difficult. People in who know Days of Our Lives would know Elaine as uh, the crazy woman, Stella, who uh, kidnapped, uh, I don't know, who the hell is that person's name? Uh, Deidre Hall, anyway. Uh, she acts a lot. She does a lot of uh, voiceovers and uh, um, theater work. She uh, was the co-author of a play uh, about the first ladies that she still tours around the country. Uh, she's a very, very successful uh, actor. And not only was she able to get a career going at the age of 26 when we were both uh, first in New York, she was able to, to sustain that career for over 40 years and continues to act steadily and uh, 
and who I'm very proud of her. Yeah, I mean, all the more, tell. yeah, all the more <laughs> impressive for a woman in acting. Absolutely, because right. you know Absolutely it's well known right. that yeah. they hit walls before yep. men do. Yeah, if she if she field. spent the time waiting for the phone to ring, her story would be very different. Yeah. She's uh, she's a person who doesn't let things happen to her. She makes things happen. Um, she's a, a very impressive woman. Yeah. And as impressive as she is, and the roles she had, including in Uncle Buck as being Macaulay Culkin's mom. Right. And I think about a year or two before he became a famous kid from Home Alone. I don't think any of those roles stacked up to the role that you played in that soap opera that I was fortunate enough to see when I made you bring in a videotape of your performance. I don't remember you making me bring in a videotape. And and with all respect, Brian, you couldn't make me do (laughs) Anything, uh, my that I'm You're much sure, bigger than me. I'm sure that was ego driven. <laughs> Is that right? I showed you I, scenes well, from uh, all my children. Yeah, I mean, I guess yes. Made made you do it is the wrong choice of words. Badgered into badgered you until you brought it in. Yes, I I don't remember all the details, but once I found out you were on a soap opera, which which one was it again? All my children. Yep. Once I found out that you were on that soap opera. And you told me about it on some late night where we were stuck in that law firm together. I said, I have to see this. And you had a videotape of it. And I presume you probably still yeah, do. Yeah. And yes, you did bring it in. And correct my recollection, but the scene I remember seeing, you played a lawyer or something like that. That's a right. That's right. How, I played how, a spineless lawyer. Yeah. How I was, I, I was going to use the word sniveling. But yes, a spineless yeah, lawyer. Yeah, sniveling would be fine. Yes. Absolutely right. So uh, how ironic, given we'll, we'll talk about your, your future career. But... So I just remember you coming into this room to report to a client on something. Right. And you were, as I said, sniveling, and they just were abusive to you. You were just a hired hand. I I got such a kick out of it seeing you because, first of all, it was many years before I had known you, so you looked different. And uh, you did great. (laughs) Well, thank you. You know. Can can you tell us that scene again? I mean, there are probably many scenes you were on for... Several I was appearance. on for about two years. And it was kind um, of a recurring, not a daily well, role. Well, it, it, it was a recurring, not a daily role, except for the times that it was daily. It depended on what the plot was. But um, it, it, it really was prompted by our getting pregnant with our first child. And um, we both had worked for all my children off and on doing little things and were uh, good friends with the casting director. And... Uh, such was the way we approach life as actors that we real we realized that we probably if I could get three or four days of work off of all my children that would handle the maternal care at that time 1983 and the midwives and stuff that we were going to go ahead and so uh, we shared the the news with the casting director a wonderful woman named Joan Dincheco and sure enough I don't know in two or three weeks she said Peter we're having trouble casting a role and the scripts are already written for the role and yet you know the producers have this was eventually going to be a role by the name of Adam uh, who had an evil brother or a nice brother as I can't remember a twin uh, and anyway, we we can't cast this guy. Would you come on in, and you can do you can be his henchman or his sort of person at the front door, and so we can continue having the plot. It's just that he'll always be upstairs and too busy to answer the door, and that'll give <laughs> us a couple of a couple of days to cast the role. And I said, of course I would. That'd be great. And it was guaranteed like four days, which was fabulous. And she said we were thinking. 
uh, instead of actually naming this role, we'll, we'll, we'll call it Philip. Peters. Get it, Peter? Get it? We'll call it Philip Peters. They, what do you they, think? Quite, I said, quite sure. Clever. Yeah, that's, that, that's a high level of creativity in soap operas. So I went in and I did Philip Peters for three or four days. And then eventually they cast a wonderful actor named David Canary as Adam. But I stayed. I, I stayed as Adam's, you know, good for nothing. When Adam would get you know, these, these nasty ideas or when Adam would want to actually Adam ended up marrying Susan Lucci and, and Adam was trying to steal money from, you know, Adam was one of these rich, nasty, evil kind of guys. And I was his go-to guy, you know, who was you, that you, Donald Michael, Trump guy? Michael Cohen. That's I it. Saying. I was his you Michael, Michael Cohen. Cohen. I mean, you see, <laughs> life turns around to answer itself, doesn't it? <laughs> who knew at the time? I was Michael Cohen. You were Michael and you played and you played him with gusto. I did. I mean, I the amount of I, I could break probably three ethical rules just by answering the door. <laughs> now, now you, you, you're a Royal Academy trained actor. Was there any moment when you was did your pragmatism just take over with the with the child on the way and say, I don't care that I have this. Fancy training. Oh, look, look. You were well past that? No, I, I, I have to tell you that what attracted me most about acting was the challenge of earning your living at it. Okay, so you never... Okay. Uh, the proudest thing I ever did as an actor was never do anything other than acting or directing. I, 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 I directed as well, both in, uh, in New York and in some universities and in regional theater. And I was very proud of... of uh, always being perceived as somebody who had something to offer to a project, at least frequently enough uh, that uh, I could get jobs. Yeah. So you're a working actor's actor. Yeah, and it didn't have to do with doing Hamlet. I see. Or as a, I, for instance, once I played Rosencrantz, actually, speaking of Hamlet, mm -hmm. right? Happy to do Rosencrantz, Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia? Absolutely fine. Or else Guildenstern, I can't remember which it was. It was either <laughs> Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, but... Um, yeah, I, I didn't have pretenses of feeling that I needed to play Christopher Marlowe heroes in order to justify my existence yeah. in the world. So, yeah. so this started around 1976 and continued That's for how right. long? Well, the, it, actually, uh, that attitude kind of got, got me in, in, in the trouble that I got into because I was, I met a guy when I was in Palo Alto as an artist in residence who taught law at Stanford. And um, he and I got to know each other purely socially. And uh, he said, I bet I'm a better actor than you are. This is a law professor. And I said, you know, that would surprise me. And he said, you, <laughs> you want to bet, I'll come see your show if you come see my criminal law class. And so I said, fine. Uh, and he came to see my show, and he and he came to me afterwards, and he said, I win. The, the, the class is tomorrow. I'll show you that I win. So I went to this criminal law class, which I found to be quite disturbing. You had all these extremely good-looking people who were all very wealthy and blonde and were wearing, like, you know, red neckerchiefs around there, and they were underlining stuff and, and taping lectures and privileged people positioning themselves to be more privileged so that they could despoil the Mississippi River for Exxon, you know? <laughs> it was really, really disturbing. So he and I met for lunch afterwards, 
And it was a three-hour lunch. It was one of those single events in your life that you didn't plan. And it ended finally with his saying, you know, Peter, I don't think that you've had a disciplined thought for the last 14 years since you left Dartmouth, which is fine, but uh, you ought to break a personal rule and actually learn something that you <laughs> have such strong opinions about. Uh, why don't you go to law school? And I said, you know, I, I'm not sure that I've been heard here. I just told you for the last two and a half hours. I despise this. You know what I mean? It's something that I loathe. It, it's something that makes me feel sick to my stomach. He said, well, I'm not saying that you should be a lawyer. I'm saying, why don't you go to law school? Aim low. You can go to a law school for free. You're an interesting person. But, but he started the conversation by saying, discipline your mind. And his yeah, view exactly was, the law right. school yeah, yeah, Just go. Just yeah. go. You, you know, go for a term. Yeah. Just sit there and listen. And, and push came to shove, and I eventually went to a law school here in New York City. And... Um, I started to go to classes, and at the same time, the plot in, in All My Children was picking up, and things got a little bit hairy, and I got people to tape lectures for me. And I was in the dressing room in All My Children one day, and they were talking about Paul's graph, about this lady, this sort of marginal uh, lady who was taking the Long Island Railroad. The yeah, out, no, it was the Long Island Railroad. That's the point because she was going out to to some rich great Gatsby guy. I'm sure she was, you know, she was a laundress or something. Paul, Paul's graph for those non-lawyers and non-law students is a famous case that every law student learns on basically the concept of proximate cause. Well, that's exactly right. She was standing there, you know, with her bags and everything else, going to schlep out to some rich guy's house. And an anarchist, this is on the Atlantic Avenue, uh, uh, Long Island Railroad Station, an anarchist was late for a train to do anarchy someplace. And <laughs> he, he ran <laughs> after the, the train, and he dropped his bag, and in the bag was some dynamite, and the dynamite blew up, and the, the uh, train station shook, and the penny weight machine, that Mrs. Paul Graff was standing next to uh, fell over and landed on her foot. She went, ouch. And she said that the Long Island Railroad should pay for her medical bills. And Long Island Railroad was saying, what do we know from an anarchist who drops dynamite in the penny machine? You know what I mean? Of course, it's, of course it's, that. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> you know. So she won all the way through until she got to the highest court, and the highest court said, we don't give that kind of relief to immigrants. And so that was another aspect of it. Anyway, I was listening to this lecture on Paul's graph. This was really, really good stuff. And on my right-hand side was my script. And my script was something like, the phone's for you. Uh, just a minute, I'll see if he's here. <laughs> and I realized, just like I realized in the Yankee Stadium, yep. this is interesting, this is not interesting. This is worth applying myself to. I wonder if this is worth applying myself to. And after 15 years of devoting myself to the theater, I realized, you know, I'm not sure I enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, you know, at the age of 35, I realized I'm not, I'm not enjoying the thing that I had invested so much in all my you know all of rada all of the, the draft all of the work that i had done i began to think i wonder if it's time 
to move to something more exciting than this. And I didn't do it then, but I did it very, very soon. I decided to go to the second term of law school. And then that summer, I was offered a position in a summer theater up in the Berkshires. And Elaine was offered the same thing, so we could go with the baby, <clears throat> Elaine and me, together and spend the summer up in the Berkshires at the uh, Shakespeare Festival. And I declined it because I had a chance to clerk for the NLRB in New York. And that was when I realized. It became pretty clear then to you. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I could tell a similar story about how I got, ended up in law school. I think it was my junior year of college. I came home on, for break. My mom said, you know, you're a junior now. What are, what are you going to do when you get out? It's coming up pretty quick. I said, I don't know, Mom. I'll, maybe I'll just get a job at some company like people do. I said it kind of stupidly like that. And she said, that's the most idiotic thing I heard. I've ever heard. Go, why don't you go to law school? So I signed up for the LSAT the next day. Because your mama said so. My mommy told me no to go. No kidding. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he did it because his mommy said. <laughs> that much, a lot of deliberation. <laughs> so yeah, so yes, your story I think I like a lot better. There's a you know there was a journey there, but for me there was none. Yes. But before we go on to, I wanted to talk about our time together where we met at, at a law yeah, firm. Yeah. But I want one more acting story. It's not really an acting story, but during your acting years, you had occasion to meet the famous playwright, Tennessee Williams. Um, I mean, when I, and when I say famous, I mean, anyone our age or my age or older would know who he is. But for those who are younger, I mean, this is a playwright on, you know, I would say in the top two or three you American playwrights of the 20th century. Right. And you met him. Yes, and I more did. Than that. Yes, I did. When I the last term that I was in Rada, the fall of 1975, I was cast in a in a production of uh, Night of the Iguana, which is uh, Tennessee Williams' play, and um, I did well in that production. The when you when you leave Rada, you are each student there is given some opportunity to shine, and my opportunity to shine was that was that production and a member of the William Morris agency came to that production in London and uh, introduced me to the William Morris agents here so my first agent as an actor William Morris came from my performance in, the, in that play. Uh, about two or three years later in New York City I was cast in the male lead of a play called Eccentricities of a Nightingale Jill Eikenbury was playing the female role, and I was playing the, the male lead, and we were doing it at Playwrights Horizons. During previews, uh, Robert Moss, who at that time ran the theater, came backstage with, wouldn't you know, Tennessee goddamn Williams. <laughs> and I was quite, as you put it, gobsmacked. Couldn't believe it, Tennessee Williams. And, uh, he said, Mr. Phillips, there's something wrong with this play, and I've never figured it out. Would you and Miss Ackenbury mind going back in rehearsal and see if we can rewrite some of those problems? I said, Mr. Williams, nothing would please me more. Absolutely. You bet. When? Where? <laughs> so I had a chance, Jill and I had a chance to work for a week or ten days with Tennessee doing some rewrites, um, none of which 
improved the play. <laughs> the play is deeply flawed, well, but you know. Well, he was right about that. But absolutely <laughs> had a chance to meet Tennessee, and and I know that I showed you, and you recently made reference to a a, a, a photograph that a press person or somebody took that first night when Tennessee came backstage, and it, it's. Uh, it's a photograph that when I when I look at it causes me both pride and pain because <laughs> because uh, I uh, I look like a million dollars I was like a twenty seven or twenty eight year old Adonis and I had uh, my hair curled for the role and uh, there I was with arguably the greatest playwright in the twentieth century. Uh, and the pain comes from the fact that I looked like an Adonis, and I was 28, <laughs> and so on. Yeah. It's, uh, not, it was, not so much now? No, no, I, not so much. I think you've very well. Yeah, do you? Thanks very much. <laughs> I don't think Tennessee would think so. <laughs> so, uh, But I do recall a part of that story when you spent that time with him. It was at least one night out on the town with Tennessee Williams, wasn't it? That was I don't remember that one. You must have conflated that with other stories of of uh, of profligacy during my acting years. I, it's, I, it may be the case. I, I remember. Well, I'll leave yeah, it at that. Yeah, we honestly, <laughs> I, we have the tape rolling. Let's skip that. Go <laughs> on to the next one. Fair, fair enough. So you go to law school at New York Law School, where we are actually sitting right now, and you eventually come out and you get a job at a large New York City law firm, I think it was Cahill, right? That's right, Cahill, Gordon, and yeah. Rindell. Which was, uh, I was had an offer to be a summer associate there myself. Did you? And ended up choosing to go to Schulte for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Mostly it being that when I came out in 91 or 92, there was a recession going on. Cahill just happened to be the first firm to kind of take the leap and lay some people off. And as a result, if you were a summer yeah. associate, yeah. you were going to choose to go somewhere else rather yeah. than take that risk. So I went to Schulte, yeah. Roth, and Zabel. Another big firm where you went. That's right. When did you join? Uh, I would think 92, maybe. Okay, so we got there around the same time. 92, 93, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I started in September of 92. And I don't remember exactly the timing, but at some point, pretty early on, you and I got assigned to work for a partner uh, right. on a very, very large case. That's right. With you being the more senior associate, That's me right. being the green... Yeah, and that, I think that case went teams. on for the bulk of the time I spent there, about yeah. four or five years. Yeah. That I, case went yeah, on. Yeah, we... Um, um, I'll just... Not the board of tears, anyone who chooses to listen to this, but basically um, we represented a bunch of banks that had bought bonds uh, to the tune of about $200 million from a fellow who actually... His name was Stephen Hoffenberg. He owned the Post for a very short period of time, and he turned out to be a fraudster. And this $200 million investment in bonds, which should have been very safe, um, went to zero. And while Stephen Hoffenberg ended up in jail and his company went out of business... And you and I met him in jail, and we said hello to him. Yeah, well, we spent an afternoon with Stephen Hoffenberg. <laughs> yes, we did. We were dressed well, and he was dressed in an orange morning, <laughs> the only onesie. Time, the only time I've been in a prison before That's right. It, it really is a very happy place. Yeah, we, we went to interview him. But um, you and I were basically, we uh, were in charge of two different parts of the case. You you sued, you helped our clients sue a bank, which was an unusual thing in a deal like this. And uh, I kind of handled more of the side where we sued a rating agency, which was maybe even more unusual because without, again, boring people who don't really care about this legal stuff, um, it's hard to sue banks uh, for a variety of reasons. And it's even harder to sue rating agencies that rate financial instruments and typically give what up until our case was an opinion. 
Which is especially hard to do that if you're a firm like Schulte Roth that lives and breathes on business that it gets from banks. And that, that's right. Which I, I never, I don't, I certainly wasn't privy. I don't know if you are, but I wasn't privy as to how, why we took on the case and why we made that exception. But you and I were off to the races for, as you say, four or five years on what, you know, $200 million back in 92. It's like a half a billion dollars. And that was a, it's a very sizable case, a very important case in our department. And, you know, I frankly learned to be a lawyer on that case. And right. you learned to become a more senior lawyer on that right. case. Right. I remember a lot of good times. Do you? Yeah, and you know. And what maybe, drugs have you been taking? <laughs> maybe we'll we th- we'll diverge on this. I just um, you know, there were a lot of bad times to be sure, because it was a very time-consuming, stressful case, and we worked for someone who was could be difficult at times, to put it nicely. I just remember enjoying, you know, the camaraderie at times, and uh, you know, our friendship developing over those years and over a lot of late nights at that firm. Yes. Now again, maybe it was different. You you had kids by now. Um, I was newly married, um, and sure, I didn't like staying late when I had a wife at home, but it was probably much worse when we were very often arbitrarily stuck at the firm when you probably would have preferred to see your kids. So uh, what was your, what was your reco- dominant recollection of you know, your time at Schulte? Well, look, I, I, Schulte notwithstanding, okay, between Cahill and Schulte, I had the, my first of several experiences. Indeed, this goes back to my acting years, too. There's nothing more wonderful than being the uh, in a room where everyone else is smarter than you are. It, it, it's a real privilege. Uh, and the 11 years that I spent as a litigator between those two firms, uh, I was put in a situation where I couldn't help not only but learn, but to be inspired by the way people approach their professional skills. I was challenged because there wasn't a single matter that I was ever assigned in those 11 years uh, that was run-of-the-mill. The only clients who are attracted to firms like that are clients with bet-the-company kind of problems and uh, who are prepared to conduct World War III and devote substantial resources to meeting their business objectives. And As a result, the nature of the problems that I worked on were uh, uh, recondite, um, challenging. Uh, we had to create law, if you recall, uh, with respect to whether a private placement uh, issuer could be could be held liable under securities fraud. We also had to create law with respect to whether a rating agency's opinions are actionable if it's only for a small number of intended recipients. Uh, The opportunity to create law. Well, look, I started in uh, Cahill in September of 87, and in April of 88, I was sitting in the well of the U.S. Supreme Court next to Floyd Abrams watching oral argument in a First Amendment case that I had had the opportunity to assist the brief. That's heady stuff. And if what you're looking for is to play with the big boys and to watch and participate in intellectual discourse of a very high uh, level, well, burn my clothes, I'm in heaven. Yeah, you're not going to do any better than that. Floyd Abrams being you know, the well-recognized number one expert in, on the First Amendment in the country. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. It was, you know, it, 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 there were 
There came a time, as one, as you can tell by the, my, the relationship I had with my first career, there came a time when I realized that what I was doing wasn't bringing out the best in me. That, uh, that the cost of pursuing that career was higher than the benefits that I was getting from it. I also realized that I was not the greatest legal mind in the New York litigation <laughs> field. You know, that I wasn't going to be a partner either at Cahill or Schulte, that my gifts didn't lie in, the, in that field to excel in that environment. So it would, there came a time to move, but I don't think that there has ever been a time that I've done anything like regret, regret or remorse for having invested that part of my life uh, doing that work. Yeah. And it's funny you, you mentioned not being the smartest person in the room. I never really thought of it that way, but you're quite right. I mean, everybody, not, not every, let me, let me take a step back. Some of the people in the rooms we were in at Chilty were some of the smartest people I've had met at that point in my life and since. Um, most of the people were highly, highly intelligent. There, were, there was no room for people who, um, you know, couldn't keep up at least. Really? Um, and, you know, I wouldn't pretend to be on the level of the partner who ran the case right. that you and I worked on and some other brilliant lawyers who we worked on in that case. And it's funny, but up until you said it, I never really thought of it as such a wonderful opportunity to be around people like that. I definitely remember thinking about my own inadequacies. Right. When you know you just go into a room and you see someone's mind working three times as fast as your own, right. and realizing you know there's nothing I can do to make my mind work that quickly, right, exactly. work hard yeah. and do a good job certainly, but um, until you just said it, I never realized what a privilege it was too, um, but it was, yeah. And and I guess that was part of probably why I do have such a positive indeed firm. My good fortune in that respect was uh, enhanced at the next position that I took because I became a senior vice president in an organization called the CPR Institute. And uh, that's kind of the anti-litigation organization. It was created by Fortune 500 companies <coughs> and by large law firms as a think tank to create methods to avoid business-to-business -business litigation, uh, and it's mainly big boy litigation. The very thing that, that I had been doing was the thing they were trying to avoid. They, they had too much legal spend. They wanted to investigate whether arbitration or principled negotiation or mini-trials or anything other than expensive, elongated, risk-filled, delay-filled, uh, uh, formal litigation would be a better fit with respect to their business model. And, and so these, these were the very, very large American and, and international that's right. uh, companies that themselves recognized the problem. That's exactly and right. And, is, and our brief was, can you figure out some process or protocol by which we can move forward. And we had a group of franchisor organizations. We had a group in the, in the chemical industry. We had a, a group in the property casualty insurance industry. These people were burdened by material spend in, in their legal departments. Uh, General Electric was, a, and DuPont, and Nestle, and British American Tobacco. These were people who 
really were ready to work with us and our job was to create platforms for innovation and it was just at that time that the uh, concept of commercial mediation was taking taking hold so on one hand we began to work with the federal and state courts and with end user uh, uh, companies that that incurred those problems and with law firms whose job it was to assist in resolving those problems and we began to take very seriously what are the protocols that get somebody to a mediation room and what are the skills that a mediator has to have in order to end up with commercially rational forget legal commercially rational outcomes that was really great stuff I mean talk about walking into a room you know you walk into a room, well, for one thing, the room's in Paris. For another thing, there's the general counsel in Nestle. You know, there's the general counsel of cable and wireless. Orange is over here. The guy from General Electric with the uh, office in, in Florence is over this place. And, and you realize, well, here's eight or nine people who, Jesus, they dropped the bomb and be it for this part. You know, global, global commerce is concerned. And all you do is know enough to ask, ask a, you know, I only had three questions. You know, the question was, what, what are you wasting your money on? And then you listen. Yeah. And then you say, well, what are the obstacles to a better way? And then you listen. And then you say, well, do you have any thoughts about how we could overcome those obstacles? And then you listen. Hey, they thought I was brilliant. Yeah, they solve their own problem and you get the credit. That's exactly right. It, yeah. was, it was marvelous. Yeah, I remember, I remember meeting you for lunch from time to time at, at uh, what was it, that deli? What was the deli? Arthur's Deli right near St. Patrick's? That's right. That's right. And, uh, it wasn't you know, Arthur's, but it was something It was else. with an A. It's long oh, gone now. It? Yeah. Okay. And um, you would tell these stories, and uh, I loved it. It yeah. was great. I mean, you obviously were having fun. Oh, I'm going to assume you succeeded in, in yeah. the goal that the organization, which is getting them to... Well, I did I well mean, in the goal. They did well by me. And the most extraordinary thing was that there was a... Go all the way back, okay, to 1970. I said I was a Quaker. All of a sudden now, there's a confluence between my desire to be creative, my spiritual instincts, and the commercial slash legal environment in which I found myself. And I realized that my instincts or my impulses or my tendencies or my ability to articulate something I care about Perfectly suited. Yeah, to I, I, unbelievable. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I, my job wasn't to create peace. My job was to ask why we're fighting and listen to the answer and challenge the basis for the answer. And I found that I was engaged in a way professionally that I've never been. And since that time, which was 1998, for a change, I haven't changed careers again. But <laughs> well, well, I've you, actually yeah. stayed in. Well, you've changed jobs. I changed yeah. jobs. And, right. and that leads us to where we are right now, which is at the New York Law School here in Tribeca. Right. And you are a professor of alternative dispute resolution That's and the director right, yeah. of the way, project the way, here. Yeah, the way I spend my days now is sort of bifurcated. Since I left CPR in 2008, I started my own uh, firm in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, where I act as an attorney, but with a practice that's restricted to acting as a mediator 
or an arbitrator. I don't have clients. I uh, accept uh, mediations or arbitrations from uh, state court in New Jersey, New Jersey federal court, Southern District of New York, Eastern District of New York, bankruptcy courts. And I also have uh, the good fortune to have certain clients who return to me and ask me to do usually mediation of um, insurance matters or franchise franchisee disputes or uh, areas in which I'm, I'm, I'm accustomed. So uh, that's my legal practice. Additionally, I am an adjunct professor at New York Law School where I have proposed and happily they've entrusted me to create an ADR program, an ADR skills program. So we have developed a battery of courses for law school students in negotiation, in mediation, particularly representing clients in mediation, in arbitration in the United States, arbitration internationally under the New York Convention, and a few other ancillary courses. So, And you created this from scratch? No, not from scratch. We already had several of those. I introduced a few, a few others. But what I really did was sort of bind them together, if you will, to have a certificate program. And I've worked in each person who offers those courses to make each one experiential. So that in our media, in our negotiation course, for example, we have two different negotiation courses. One of them concentrates on client counseling, interviewing, and negotiating on behalf of the client. The other one is negotiation, 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 negotiation. That course, for example, when you say negotiation, you mean like techniques of negotiation. That's right. Theory that's behind right. negotiation. That's exactly right. In okay. fact, that's what it's called: theory, negotiation theory, and practice. Mm -hmm. And Although we do read negotiation theory and discuss it, every week they are given an exercise where they have to do a role play. They get in front of a camera, they tape this negotiation. The next week we, we watch the tape and we say, well, what if you did this and what if you did that? And people begin to support each other and help each other. So you have an actual experiential learning uh, rather than simply, well, I read a book about it yeah. once. And right. uh, now negotiation is another example of, of a course that I take tremendous uh, gratification from because every lawyer, whether they're in trust and estates, whether they're in M&A, whether they're in corporate f formation, whether they're in criminal law, uh, always negotiates every day. You negotiate over discovery disputes. You, know, you, you negotiate in plea bargaining. Uh, you negotiate to resolve questions uh, that arise from a will contest. Yeah. You Corporate lawyers negotiate, negotiate over their transactional documents. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, and th there is a difference between lawyers who are trained and lawyers who are not. Uh, I feel really very proud of the fact that so many New York Law School graduates leave with formal negotiation training. And I advise them how to go into a negotiation and you can tell within about two minutes whether the person on the other side of the table knows what they're doing because our graduates do mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a lovely it's a lovely thing to uh, and as I say a deeply gratifying thing to be able to invest in a young lawyer respect for the skill of negotiation uh, an understanding of the critical importance that reputation has, reliability, ethical 
credibility. S- absolutely. Yeah. That that's how you get clients. Yeah. That's how you get rich as a as a lawyer. Uh, and it all comes through in the candor, skill, and reliability with which you conduct negotiation. That's how you build a rep. Yeah. All right. All right. It's, as you could tell, I'm enjoying well, myself well, a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, well, that's why I thought of doing the podcast with you in the first place. Yeah. Between, you know, I mean, it seems like everything you've been fortunate to do, you've been fortunate to have really enjoyed and really, you know, obviously you've, you've had some pivots. You know, you had that moment where you decided you know, right. acting wasn't for you and you'd want to try something else. But it certainly sounds like the 15-year the run you had as an actor right. was immensely gratifying as well. Yeah. It, it was interesting. I hope you didn't look, have a realization when you decided to be a lawyer or go to law school and kind of rewrite the 15 years prior to, to suggest that they weren't time well spent because it no. certainly sounds like it to me. No, no. It, it, I had an interesting discussion with my mother around the time that my dad died. I was having some difficulty for a variety of reasons arranging to actually see him. I wanted to visit him, and it was, uh, you know, hard to do. And I was kvetching to my mother, saying, you know, woe is me, woe is me, why am I having this frustration, this difficulty? And she said to me on the phone, look, is there anything you need to tell him? I mean, is there anything that's not been, been, been you know, said between the two of you? I said, no, 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 no. Well, what's the problem? You're good. <laughs> That's what you said. And, and I realized, you know, <laughs> I, I realized it, that's true with me, too. I would like to make sure that as between me and me, and as between my son and me and my wife and me and my daughter is me, if I get hit by a bus, one last thing I'm thinking of isn't, oh, damn it, I should have, right? <laughs> But I, I would like to be in a, in a position not only with respect to my own understanding of my journey and with respect to the critical relationships that I have with people that I love, that right now we're in balance. Mm-hmm. There isn't anything that needs to be corrected. Is there anything you want to tell me? <laughs> Brian, I think I can get hit by a bus as far as you're concerned. You're going to be okay? <laughs> I know it's the time of the high holy days, but atonement is not coming your way today. I'm sorry. I just figured I'd ask and give you the yeah, opportunity. I know, I know, I know, I know. So, uh, so we've been doing this for an hour, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. But there's one more anecdote I just want to hit before right. we call, call, it a, call it a day, which is that um, when I saw your son a, a month or so ago for lunch, um, he had just come back from a trip to Greece. Um, in which you and just about all the That's members right. of the clan got to go on. That's right. And this is what he told me. He said, um, I told my parents that I won this trip to Greece. All expenses paid trip to a villa that could hold, how many of you went? Ten plus people? Yeah, really. And It's like a seven-bedroom <laughs> villa in Mykonos. <laughs> yeah, so, so your reaction, I don't know if he was more focused on yours or Elaine's, but one of you or both of you just didn't believe him. There was just there was um just a lack of, of trust there. You yes. felt, you felt that um as it continued as you got closer to the trip date that it wasn't real and that fine you, you realize you're getting on a plane and even when you're on the plane and even when you arrived at, in Greece 
you or Elaine or both of you yeah, were the view, of the, view yeah. of the view that Elaine was sure we're not going to have been, a place. Yeah, that's right. He'd been, that he'd up. been taken for a ride somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's probably true. I can't really speak to that very much, but it's an interesting thing about Peter. He he. Um, Peter's uh, American and male and white and young, and for that reason, he's among the most privileged people in, in the world. At the same time, uh, Peter, pretty much everything he has, he worked for. Yeah. And he has faced a certain adversity that uh, his ability to overcome certain things that happened in his life with grace and with equanimity uh, make me admire him uniquely among the people I've met. He's a person of just remarkable diligence, acumen, gifts, and grace, and hard work. That said, he has a thing about sweepstakes. <laughs> he, has a, he has a thing that somehow it's possible to get something for nothing. And he spends just an inordinate amount of hours. We're talking about somebody who works for a big law firm, okay? He spends hours every week entering sweepstakes, you know, so he gets, you know, two hot dogs for the price of one, this kind of thing. And I'm thinking to myself, why, why does a person who, in, 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 in every other respect, you know, is so hardworking, still has this thing about it? And, and, you know, it's something that I tried to shut my mouth about because who wants to criticize your son? But then he calls me up and says, oh, I, I want a sweepstakes. Really? Yeah, yeah, we're going to Greece for a week. No. But sure enough. We went to Greece for a week. Yeah, I mean, that story fascinated me too, frankly, for all the reasons you described about your son. That I stopped him right there and said, "Tell me about this." Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't. Yes, he he did describe spending a lot of time. But as you know, being a lawyer at a large firm, there's a lot. You know, you work for an hour on the brief, or in his case, he's a corporate lawyer. You work for an hour on transaction documents. You need your 15 minute break. And what we used to do before they had you know, sweepstake places on the internet to fill out. You know, I'd go down the hall and I'd learn about, you know, you hanging out with Tennessee Williams. If he wants to choose to use his time to, to enter sweepstakes. Hey, look, I'm a beneficiary. I'm a beneficiary. <laughs> what am I bad mouthing? The, yeah, you know, I, don't he, think, I don't think he's looking for two hot dogs to the prize winner. He, he's smart. He, by the way, if you, if you ever speak to him more about this, he, this is not something he's just wildly doing. He, he has thought it through. He, um, He's no, a strategic sweepstakes <laughs> player, is he? Oh, okay. Yes, he is. He is. It's, it's, it, I, was, I was blown away by how clever it was, and, and I'm not surprised when he told me he won, and I'm not surprised that he's won other things too. So uh, I think it's great, and he sounded like you guys had a, had a blast there. Yeah, we had a wonderful time. Yeah. Wonderful time. It's not often the, the transition from being the head of a family to being, you know, the guy in the corner who picks his nose, you know, the grandfather, you know, the one who, oh, I forgot to invite him for Thanksgiving. That, that transition was is a is a challenge in my life that continues now. And uh, I don't think our daughter has joined us for Thanksgiving in ten years. You know, uh, to have a week together, whether it's in Mykonos or the Bronx doesn't really matter. But to have a week together with Peter and his wonderful wife, they have two children. So I'm, I'm there with my granddaughter, my grandson, my wife, and our daughter and her husband, 
Uh, yeah, it's like that moment of equanimity like you described at the yeah. Yankee game in 2001. Yeah. All of a sudden you, know, you realize, well, there's balance right now. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is a moment where, where everyone treats there, – there's a James Aggie uh, quote about being treated as one who was familiar and well-beloved in that place. And that's what it felt like. Yeah. It was great. That, that, that's great to hear. Well, Peter, I, I don't think we can do better than that to end this. Okay. Uh, did you enjoy the process at least? I loved it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear it. No, well, listen, I, I'm just glad that, you know, we've kind of reconnected. I, you know, we, we did a good job for many years after we both left Schulte, and including when I was still at Schulte, staying in touch. But then there was a little period sure. where, uh, you know, we kind of got sure. lost a little, and I'm glad in the last few years we've uh, Absolutely. brought it back. So. Great to see you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for the idea. Hope you enjoy when you're here. Okay, I'll see you.